0: Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the paths toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Danielle, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really good today. How are you?
0: Doing great. Um, Danielle, could you go ahead and get started and just give us a brief bio and some big things you're interested in?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, well, we got one of my main interests back here, cats. That's my I love cat, it. Littles, also known as Tulip Willow Ginger Bear.
0: Oh. Um, all my animals have, <laughs> have long
1: names, but that's her intro. I guess I should intro myself. Uh, yeah, I'm Danielle Strackman. I am a founder and general partner of 1517 Fund. We are a fund that works at the pre-seed stage of so very early backers, and we have this sort of um, novel thesis of backing people who do not have a college degree I'd say 90% of our founders don't have a ba or BS and we really consider ourselves almost like a um, anti-establishment educational institution over a VC fund um, you know so our 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 founders are scholars and residents and they're learning by doing by building their companies uh, and cool. before this I was at the teal foundation I was on the founding team the teal fellowship and Uh, worked with a great team there and we worked with Peter to pick out Teal Fellows and some of those people have become household names that that we worked with and and when we were working with them they weren't known you know we're not like Forbes 30 under 30 uh, where we're minting people after they've done something great it's more hey we think this person has potential let's give them two years and a hundred thousand in grant funding to see what they can do um, you know, one person who's been in the news more recently is Austin Russell of Luminar Technologies. That's actually a company of ours that has recently gone public. Um, you know, this uh, this makes Austin one of the youngest people to IPO in history. And so it's it's pretty exciting. Uh, and we also worked with people like Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum, Dylan Field of Figma, um, Paul Gu of Upstart, Laura Deming of the Longevity Fund. Like, I, I could just keep going here. Um, but we saw that we were, we had access to this community of young people and we seem to be really good at picking people who have uh, like potential uh, and being able to move them forward with something. I, I like to say we often work with a team with a name and help them grow into a company. And uh, and we said we wanted to expand that six years ago. And so we left the foundation to start 1517. It's actually funny. I've, I've been you know talking about how we're six years old at this point and it still feels like we're only about three years old. I don't know that's where that's going. Uh, and then, and lastly, I'll just close out with that. Uh, I've been very passionate for a long time about, um, educational options for young people. I have a personal mission to bring freedom and autonomy, uh, you know, to, to what I would call young people. Someday when I'm 60, I'll think, you know, 40 year olds are the young people, but uh, but but right now it's really about education and giving people choices and options instead of saying that one path is for all and and in that vein, I also have a charter school I started about 14 years ago in San Diego called Innovations Academy. I just had a great experience visiting there about two weeks ago. Um, I'm on the board and we moved into a building that's our a home of our own and uh, we get to stay there forever and uh, it's, it's just so nice. It's a really beautiful building and we're going to be able to put art on the walls and do what we want. And, you know, I remember when we first started and all the furniture was used and we were basically this scrappy startup school and, you know, calling parents and saying, Hey, can you, can you all bring paper towel today? We don't have budget for this and this. And I walked the building the other day and we've got, you know, beautiful screens that drop down and technology all over the place. I'm like, wow, we've come a long way. So it's a it it was just wonderful to see.
0: That's excellent. That's excellent. I've I've got a couple of questions for you about that a little bit later. Uh, But first I wanted to ask, you know, you've done a really incredible job of, you know, picking successful young people and, and and there may be, there's also an effect where, you know, you're giving them some slack to work on what they're interested in. So you're you're definitely helping that process. Um, So it's tough to untangle, you know, things, but, but what did you look for? What do you look for? Um, when you see a young person, and you think this person has a ton of potential? Is there like a formula? Or is it more just like, it's, I'm assuming it's like a unique case each time. But but how do you think through that? And how did there you come are, to that process?
1: Yeah, you know, there are certain things that we've started to come up with. Um, there's a term that we use that we've kind of invented, we call it hyperfluency, And it's when someone can talk backwards and forwards about a space. Um, you know, it's like, If someone can just geek out about the technology sector they're in and you can just tell like it's something it's so it's such an in-person experience of you're talking to someone and they're so jazzed about what they're doing it's like nearly infectious one of the questions we ask ourselves when we're evaluating making an investment and we asked this question too uh, at the teal fellowship we asked Do we have more or less energy after talking to this person? And oftentimes, if a person is really into something, it's like they zap you with it. You're like, I had no idea I was into quantum computing, but wow, (laughs) I'm so interested in it now because this person has infected me. Um, And it's being able to not just talk about the technology, but about the business cases, about how they build the team. They can just kind of go all over the place with it. But there's another quality that we look for, too, because some people are very good at sounding very smart about things. Oh, interesting. Um, But what they're not good at is communicating to maybe the general public about something. And so we'll meet founders who we'll call it that they're up in like this fog of abstractions and they're talking about their technology. And we're like, cool, talk to me like, Like well, what Michael, my colleagues, honestly says, and I hate that he says it, but I'll 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 say it here is he says, talk to me like I'm the dumbest golden retriever you've ever encountered, (laughs) and now tell me about what you're building. And uh, and what's interesting is that there's a lot of people who can't do that, who can't just simplify. And we think that ability to not only talk backwards and forwards, but also at different levels, is really important because you're bringing on team members, you're bringing on investors, you're selling to customers. You have to be able to communicate really, really well about something across across this very multi-dimensional space and very few people can do that. So that's one of the the, uh, qualities we look for most. We also look for curiosity as a quality. Um, On calls, I'm kind of notorious for being like, tell me about your hobbies, tell me about your aspirational hobbies. Like I want to know what people are into um, because it kind of just shows us too how dimensional is this person Um, and if what they're working on doesn't work out, could they be similarly passionate about something else? So that's also important. And then lastly, I will say that there's this intersection of, um, the person has to be somewhat technical to start building what they're doing, but they also have to have the social intelligence to work with other people. And so all these things are really important to us and end up kind of coming up with like, okay, there's like small, small bits of people who fit all these things in a, in a really, uh, strong way so when I meet someone who especially matches all three of those areas boldly I get super excited I'm like oh, I found one of our tribe like I found a weirdo in the wild they're ours like we just got to bring them in just, just reel them in that
0: that's yeah. great it, I that does remind me of a question I have uh we talked to Tommy Collison uh, a couple weeks yeah. ago and he's yeah. uh Patrick's you know yeah. brother uh and he was talking- yeah yeah he's a really (laughs) he's a really great guy and he's really passionate about the great books Yeah, Um, we had Mm -hmm. a great conversation and we were comparing like um, our childhood and his childhood in ireland Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it was interesting and it I thought they had a great model where, you know, he could kind of pursue, you know, as long as it was like you know, so, something he was interested in, he could go and do it and his he- parents helped enable that. That's Whereas great. in the U S there's a, intense pressure and in competition for like college prep. And in fact, we talked about a, you know, a college prep kindergarten or pre-K or something recently. Um, oh. Do you think there's some sense in which the American educational system has zapped out a lot of like that curiosity and that like, you know, I, kind of what you were looking for and trying to select, you know, good founders. It's like people that are really passionate about this one thing and, and you talk to them and it's like, wow, now I'm passionate about that, what they're talking about.
1: Yeah. You know, I think we've got big problems on our hands. And and one of the areas that my school focuses on is being able to offer students the ability to contribute to what they're learning and be part of that process. So instead of the teacher coming in saying, we're going to learn about X, it's the teacher's job to be sort of more like a scientist and observe Hmm, here's what the students in this class are interested in let me try throwing out a couple project ideas and see what they want to do um you know last year over the pandemic I got really excited because a lot of people got to sort of experience independent learning or homeschooling or pod learning um and I know a lot of families I have a housemate Allison and she was talking to a friend over Zoom who's a six-year-old and you know I'm like this big homeschooling proponent and uh her friend over zoom said like yeah no you know we've been educating our son at home he's six he's doing really great with it like i don't think we're gonna send him back to school like this is just working really well for us and i'm in the background like yeah i'm like it's not even someone i'm talking to being excited about homeschooling um and so people got a a taste for it and another piece that i also saw was um a lot of people were tweeting things out or putting things on social, of like, oh, my kid is so bored that they've decided to take up guitar playing, or, or they're reading one of the great books, or they're right. doing the thing. And I'm, and like, I'm really adamant about this. That's not boredom. That's motivation. That is what it looks like when someone's truly motivated is that they go forward and and they create something. And it's funny you asked me this question because I, you know, I did not purposely do this, but I have this book right here that oh, nice. it's backwards on your screen, but it's the Teenage Liberation Handbook. Um, I haven't read this myself yet, but this is a book that is about helping teenagers to learn about how they can educate themselves in a more sort of freedom informed way. And I actually don't, I don't even know. I'm like, what year was this book written? It was written in, I'm like, oh, that's the edited one. <laughs> For some reason, I thought this book was from the seventies, but I think it's actually from the nineties, but I'm super excited to read it and see like hmm, like what things still hold up to you? Okay, yeah, first edition, 1991. Um, so I'm super excited to read this and see like, you know, does, does this still fully hold up today? I've skimmed it a tiny bit and so far, like the first chapter is like, yeah, why is freedom important? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is so great. Um, so I'm excited to read this and maybe do like a Clubhouse book club about it or something, because I think that, um, I think giving young people and teenagers the opportunity to, like discover for themselves and learn and educate themselves in a more nuanced fashion is really important to your point, um, you know, about learning from the Collison's experience growing up, that they had more of that um, experience. And one last thing I'm going to throw out there is um, I wish schools would kill homework. Um, oh, our school has a no homework policy uh, and at least a no, no like rote homework policy. You know, if you have to talk to your parents at something at home about something that we need for class, maybe that goes home. But we just fully believe that, you know, after work, I wouldn't say like, you know, if I have an employee, I wouldn't say to, you know, Nick on my team, hey, by the way, here's more work for you to do after your work hours. And um, we really believe that young people should be able to use that free time to be motivated about other things instead of like, you know, funneling more schoolwork down their throats. Danielle it seems like what
0: you're what I hear you saying is that you believe you can teach people to be hyper fluent and and you can teach communication skills and you can teach curiosity and a passion for what you do.
1: You know I guess one of the things that I would say I think that would be I wish I could like I and I think I have some ability in this arena but I wouldn't be so bold to say like that I can bottle it and be like here's how you do it but I think that humans innately have these things. And it's not that we have to um, teach them, it's that we have to get out of the way and stop putting other things on top that encumber people from doing what I think humans are naturally pretty damn good at. Um, You know, I've spent a lot of time with really small children too. And you watch a four-year-old who's like super into something and they'll stay there for a really, really long time and be really into it. And, uh, And I think there's just a lot that whether it's parenting or school that we lay on top of, of the human experience that kind of stifles people and, and they then move away from it, or they're told, Oh, that thing you're really interested in, you really can't spend that much time on it. Cause you have to do these other things instead. So I think we're, we're all there. I think we just need to like bust out the, uh, I don't know, the, the oppressive half to's
0: So we, we need, we need to remove impediments as,
1: yeah, I think it's I think it's more about that. And I, and I do think there are things that help. Um you know, I think dialoguing with children about their interests helps them build that hyperfluency. I think getting them to say, "Hey, you know, go talk to Aunt Sheila about you know, what you're really interested in. Oh, you're really interested in AI and Aunt Sheila doesn't understand AI. Okay, well try to explain it to her so she will understand it. I mean, so like that happens, I think within families and, and can be fostered. And some parents are definitely better at, um, you know, that kind of interactive style than others. So I do think there are, are places where, um, you know, families and educational groups can sort of step in to help that facilitation, but it should be facilitation um, you know, and not just a bunch
0: of to do's. Right. That that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, we talked to Mark Prinsky and he invented the term digital native. Um, mm-hmm. He he had this um, idea that a lot of times when we ask kids what they want to be,
1: mm-hmm. they'll
0: say, you know, we will be like, Timmy, what do you want to be? And he'll say, I want to be an NBA star. And, you know, and then we'll go, well, you know, Timmy, it doesn't look like you're going to be seven feet tall. So maybe that's not the best choice. And the truth is, is Timmy, you know, maybe he just wants to be, you know, wealthy or he wants to be famous, or there's like, you know, he, he's just interested in in basketball analytics or something, but he doesn't have a word to put behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Do, do you think this is a real effect? Like, should we be asking the next question? It's like, well, why?
1: I think that's a super interesting question. And I read a great book on it called Peak. I can't remember the peak. author's name right gotcha. now, but it's it's Peak. It's the um it's the researcher who basically came up with the sort of um, somewhat bastardized 10,000 hours of practice thing that that Malcolm Gladwell ah, gotcha. kind of ran with. And uh, he wrote this great book. It's a really long book. I think he felt like he needed to write this really big book because he was like, oh, no, this this like sort of pop science guy took my thing and ran with it, and now he's famous, and I'm not. <laughs> um, but um, But I really love this book. And he, towards the end of the book, he, so the premise is really about that you know, natural ability might help get you interested in something, but it's the practice that makes you really good at it. And one of the things that I thought was so fascinating is towards the end of the book, if you make it that far, because it's a long one, <laughs> is he talks about children who learn, um, I think he was talking about chess players. And what he talks about is that the students who are naturally very good to start don't turn out to be the best chess players it's the second tier students because they have some natural ability but they have to work hard and the ones that work hard end up being the ones later who are like the super competition chess players and so the point that he's making there is he thinks it's just a shame that we take young people and you know in third grade and say oh well you don't have a natural ability at math, so we're gonna put you in the standard group. And oh, you have a natural ability, so we're gonna put you in the accelerated group. And he's sort of positing that we have lost out on a whole class of very high performers because we've just boxed them into the wrong place way too early. Um, so I'm very interested in, in these types of things and, and even ideas of like, you know, exposing children to different types of ideas, different areas to your point it's not just about doing the sport it might be that um you know someone is a savant about memorizing baseball stats we had a young man who worked on our team years ago who was that and i was like wow that is one hell of a brain you have on you (laughs) like you don't look like the type of person who'd play but wow man do you just have it down pat and it's just really interesting so I, i think your point is a really good one that we need not discourage people when they're younger, um, we should be doing sort of more exposure to more subjects or, you know, I think um, educators and parents could be more inquisitive of like, oh, interesting. You're interested in, in basketball. Like, well, what makes you interested in basketball? Is it playing it? Is it you like watching the sport? Oh, what about the sport do you like watching? Um, a friend of mine is Michael Strong, who is a great Socratic educator. Oh, yeah. And he has wonderful videos where he goes through and uses the Socratic method with younger children. And I, you know, I just, I wish more people understood that methodology because you help young people develop their thinking and um, their interest by doing it.
0: That's excellent. I I love that. And I I remember I actually got to meet Michael Strong and I had lunch sitting right beside him in Mm. college. So that's funny. Mm. That was a very informative experience yeah, that's that's cool. That's cool, um, Danielle. So, to fifteen seventeen fun. Um, when I look at your thesis, and this is like, I, I don't know if this is explicit, but I, I see it as kind of like uh, you guys found this twenty dollar bill on the sidewalk, which people yeah. are missing. Which is that you know you can start at any age and yeah. tackle different problems it's not you're not gated except for you know maybe politics is gated i don't know they all seem to be in their the late 70s now yeah. <laughs> right, exactly um but do you think uh m- people just fundamentally miss that fact is that and is that kind of like a, a truth yeah. you guys find to be important so we say
1: we say our contrarian uh truth is that child labor is good um, <laughs> so, so and and i only mean that in the most positive way of course i know it's that it's like it's like super tongue-in-cheek to say that um, because of course we don't want young people (laughs) working in poor working conditions but uh, what we do believe is that yeah there's a a narrative that's hey you can do these things that you want to do but after you finish high school after you finish college after you get your PhD after you're married after you buy a house like there's this whole escalator of stuff that you're supposed to do in a particular order Um, and so what we say is that that's just not true. Um, and in fact, you know, we want to help encourage people to do things now. And it doesn't mean that every person we work with has to take the dropout path and build a company and um, you know, sort of be a renegade person. It means crafting your own life. And so for some people going to college is the right place for them to be. And that is the right decision. And that is as beautiful a crafting as if you're going off on a totally different path. So we totally respect um, people are going to make individual choices in this. Um, for us, we also try to encourage um, people to work on things in the moment, instead of being told to do it later. And one way we do this is through a grant program that we run through 1517. Um, we will offer people thousand dollars, usually a high school or college student, um, to work on something of their choosing. And we'll often meet people at office hours or hackathon. Someone will come up to our table and say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in building, you know, X, Y, or Z. Um, Actually, one of our companies that is doing really well started as a grantee with us. They're called Presso. And they they are a robotics company. And they make basically like a new type of um, dry cleaning machine is the way that I would say it. And they started at a hackathon with a bunch of hangers, uh, like a a lamp with the lights hanging down on stuff. And they had hair dryers hanging off of it. Pointed at the clothes. Like it's super scrappy, super scrappy. (laughs) And um, my colleague Nick met them at a hackathon. We give them a thousand dollars as a Venmo payment. We make it super simple. There's oh, no paperwork. Awesome. There's nothing, um, and there's a lot of trust. We're just like we don't just we don't need them. reports from you later about how you spent the thousand bucks. You know, just we want you to have a learning experience with this thousand bucks. And we do want to hear from you if it, you know, is working well or not working well. Because for us, you know, we want to know we want to learn alongside these people, these makers. And this particular team kept going on what they're doing. They got into the Hacks Accelerator, um, which is a, one of the premier hardware accelerators. And uh, now they're in business. They sell their uh, dry cleaning robot actually in the film industry. Because what oh, wow. you know, you always find out these interesting things. Uh, they eventually want to sell into other verticals. But what they found out was that the people who do wardrobe for actors and um, you know people in film they are responsible for the clothes. And if if that costume goes missing off site, dry cleaning and never comes back, somebody's getting fired. Oh, no. And so they love having these machines on site so they can be accountable for everything. And that started as a thousand bucks. We were just like, hey, go play. <laughs> like,
0: That's awesome. like,
1: let <laughs> us know what you learned. And now they're building a full-fledged company. I think they've got almost 15 people on their team wow. um, and, uh, and they're, they're shipping out robots.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. It, it seems like Slack is is a really important thing. Like uh, some amount it, this is a kind of this is a theme I've heard in our conversation. Have you ever heard of uh, Don Braben and his concept of scientific freedom? No Any chance. Uh, you should check him out. He's he's really okay. cool. He's like he's like eighty five now. He's still really sharp. I um, love that. But he, he ran, a, they just republished his book through Stripe Press. And so he, he got some attention from that. But he he has this concept of venture research. And in mm-hmm. the 90s at BP, he gave, you know, scientists like no strings attached money to go follow their curiosities. Oh, that's and, and, you know, he got like a Nobel Prize out of it. And they, they spent like this tiny amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. And he's got this thought that, you know, there's just too much bureaucracy now in the grant making agencies. You can't find and follow. So so do you think like slack, is that really an important ingredient? And that's, is that something we just kind of missed here in the 20th, 21st century?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's very interesting. One of the things with the fellowship was that we had, we had this incorrect thought that you had to give someone a lot of money to get them to like really move forward with something. And it was probably about five years into the fellowship that we said, Hey, what if we gave people a thousand bucks? Like, sure. We're not going to, you know, the person who gets the hundred thousand is going to be at a different level than the person who gets the thousand bucks. But, uh, why don't we try that out? And we found amazing success with the thousand (laughs) dollar grant program in terms of like, both, I think giving people slack to do something, but I think for our particular cohort, I call it more the nudge. It's like, it just kind of puts them over the edge to actually starting to work on a thing. And I think part of it is, you know, when when a, a teenager or someone in their early 20s is pitching us at a table and they're like, oh, wow, like, okay, I'm getting to talk to, you know, seeming adults who run a venture capital fund. Um, and they say that this thing could have legs. Okay, cool. Like, I'm gonna go find out about that, and I guess the way that we approach things too is that we don't say to people like, "Oh yeah, we think this is gonna work out." We just say, "This is really interesting." And yeah, what yeah. would you do with a thousand dollars? And oh, I'd buy this or I'd do that, um, you know. And then I'd start building, and and then they, uh, you know, they move forward on it. And I, there, there's what we've heard feedback from founders a lot on that grant is that it wasn't even the money so much as it was more like, okay. Two people told me I could. I could. I had permission. Like I could go do. Like for some, I don't know. I I don't really need a lot of permission to do things. So am I <laughs> surprised when other people do? Um, but other people need permission, and we're we're like, oh yeah, we'll totally give you permission to go build what you want to build and make what you want to make. And there's something. There is something powerful about that. And so I'm very much looking forward to looking more into the. Um, the person that you mentioned, yeah, Don,
0: pretty yeah, pretty
1: amazing.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating, and, and that is it. That's a really interesting point that you know, telling people that they can go do big things, and you know, here's a little bit of money. Like we believe in yeah. you, you can make do something cool. Like go try it. That's yeah. super interesting.
1: Well, one thing I'll add to this, actually, I had a very powerful meeting with the founder today. We have a, a founder who is working on an incurable disease, and um, I'm gonna leave it at that. But he's making some amazing progress in um, mice studies on like potentially carrying this thing that is is uh, oh, wow. really uh, destructive to, a, you know, large numbers of the population. And at one point, um, you know, towards the end of our conversation, he says, you know, sometimes I just can't believe that like I'm worthy enough to be the person working on this. And he actually got tears in his eyes, like... <laughs> And I was really struck. I was like, wow. I was like, yeah. And it was just over Zoom, of course. And I'm like, if we were in person, I'd be like, let's go in for a hug. Like, yeah. let's do this. But we're over Zoom. And I was like, hey, you seem really like touched right now by what you're doing. And he's like, yeah, no, I really am. And some days I just can't believe that this is the work that I get to do. And I have you guys supporting me. And like, he's like, and even if what I'm doing doesn't work out, um, it's still worth doing. And I was like, yes, that's it. Like, and what I call this is a calling. Like this guy has found his calling and whether it works out or not, doesn't matter. He's going in the right direction and he's gonna figure something out one way or the other. And we love working with people like that and being able to say like, yeah, it's okay to work on your calling. Like, you know, and this person dropped out of school. Um, Their parents weren't happy about it. They've been a dropout for a couple of years now. you know, he definitely has some of the mad scientist thing going on because, you know, you, you don't get to be a dropout and want to cure an incurable disease without people thinking you're nuts. Um, so it's just been really exciting to be able to help people to do the things that they're meant to do. Danielle, it,
0: it really sounds more to me like rather than permission, what you're giving people is validation, which to me seems mm. much more important.
1: Absolutely, that's good. I'm going to use that word from now on. I like that. Yeah, it is validation. It's it's one. It's this funny thing where I think a lot of people know in their hearts, like I really want to do this thing, but they just kind of need a little extra to finally like move themselves forward with it.
0: That's great. That's great. Um, I wanted to move a little bit now and talk about so 1517 fun the Reformation. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. What do you think has gone so wrong with the universities? And um, and and I do think you know you guys have a good approach. And and maybe why is not even the right question. And maybe it's just we need more reflection uh, for mm-hmm. each individual person on on what the right path is. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
1: Gosh, yeah, I think there's a lot to say there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, gosh, there there is so much. I mean, I think part of it is societal. Um, One of the things that uh, I'll sometimes say is that, you know, I think until we reach sort of more radical life extension of like people living a thousand years or something like that, we have this problem where we think that our experience is the experience that has always come before. And so, you know, most of our parents went to school. So they're like, oh, I went to school. It was good for me. And so my kids should go to school. But what they're not factoring in is like the current day economics of school, the opportunity cost, um, that there are other options out there. One way that I like to talk about higher ed is that um, it really like if you think about learning more like transportation, there's an analogy I'm going to like kind of to weave in here. Gotcha. But um you know, at one point we had the horse and buggy. And then at one point we had the car and you'd, you know, I'm sure some people would have said, Oh no, we shouldn't drive cars. Like they're dangerous. They have this, they have that do the horse and buggy. Well, eventually the car became adopted and the horse and buggy is out. And now we have airplanes. And so like, we can keep accelerating things. I think the same is true in higher ed where at one point it was an accelerated path to something, but now it kind of feels like the horse and buggy to me where When I went to school, four years didn't feel that long because the opportunity cost was different. I couldn't, you know, I got my first laptop in college. It's not like they were just these ubiquitous things that everybody had. Um, You know, I couldn't start a startup from my dorm room, at least not nearly as easily. Um, There weren't as many resources. There wasn't as much that you could learn online. And so four years for me, I think viscerally felt very different than what it would feel like for a young person today because the opportunity is just so different. It's like, oh, I can crack open a laptop. I can start you know, a project right now. I can put something out on Twitter that goes viral. I can make something and people are using it by tomorrow. And it's not always that fast, but it's a lot faster than four years of, uh, of school time. And so I think that is a place where higher ed just keeps thinking of themselves. Like, I think the timepiece is really, really critical and the cost is really critical as well. Um, and of course, a lot of it is also predicated on, you know, some some like to say on our team that schools are really just glorified hedge funds. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's me. what they're really about is the endowment, not about the learning and the education. And I think actually to like really put a bow on all this, like the the last year in quarantine and, um, you know, the coronavirus has really taught us that, like the the high-end schools know that they're selling a handbag because they didn't even reduce their prices when everything was online. Like, that (laughs) took me to my core. I was like, really, Harvard? Really? You're gonna charge the same amount. Your students are never gonna set foot on campus and you're still gonna say it's about the quality of the experience, like, there are some mighty fine words I want to say that I'm going to keep to myself about that one. But, uh, it just makes me so mad. Um, and uh, and it just really shows their colors. And and then lastly, the thing that we always like to say is that if educational institutions were really into educating people, they would do more. They could scale right. the degrees, they could scale the classes, but it's not about that. It's about having a small handful of people that you can stamp with a logo and say, these ones are ours. Um, and those people going out there and and saying hey i got this thing so it means that i'm better than other people um and it's just toxic
0: yes it it seems very toxic and i i want to talk about uh the handbag so and and this is funny this is a funny way to to get to this but so i went to unc chapel hill yeah Dad went to unc chapel hill and you know it's a quite it's a good state state school but it's a state school and it's now, it's a acceptance rate is now the same as Stanford's was 20 years ago. Wow. And it's just like, what is going on? You know what I mean? Like you, the, the access, like this is severe access problem. There's more people that want to go and, and there aren't enough spots. Um, can you talk about, you, you mentioned, you know, Harvard's like a handbag, like a Harvard yeah. degree is like a handbag. Um, yeah. So just to break this down, it, it seems like a lot of what, um, you know, an elite institution is, is just like a status signal. And Mm -hmm. it's not, it's much less like a, it's not that you get a better education per se. It's more that you're, it's something to show off. Do you think that's true?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think where things like this will eventually fall apart and we've seen it start falling apart. Some is that, um, you know, I think a lot of hiring institutions use higher ed as their assessment criteria. Um, it's their way gotcha. of saying, "Oh, we know this person is smart. We know this person is willing to follow the rules because they didn't get kicked out. Um, you know, we know this person is willing to put in the time to do something, and so on. Uh, you know, and we are starting to see uh, places even like Google that don't require having a college degree anymore on, uh, you know, applying for jobs and things like that. So I do think." I I think actually it really starts at the top at hiring institutions of when those groups start doing their own assessment, I think some of them are going to find, and I think some of them did find even over COVID, especially with remote work. Wow, there's really talented people all over the place and we just have to go find them. And and again, it is a really hard problem. Assessment is is very, very difficult. Um, But I think that is, I think there's a fear that a lot of higher ed sells to other people of like, oh, you're not going to be able to make it unless you have this piece of paper, and especially if you don't have our piece of paper, ours is going to get you into the door to the life that, you know, you really want in the future, even though maybe the degree you're getting actually has no jobs in it, and you don't know <laughs> that. But we're not going to tell you that part. Right. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, I think one thing that's interesting is that Gen Z is really savvy like really, 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 really savvy. Um, I think, I don't know where they got their bullshit meters from, but they're (laughs) turned up way high. Like they're just, it's just way high, they they get it. They're like, oh yeah, this is bullshit. Like all these things I've been told are bullshit. Like, and I'm not, and I'm just not doing it. And it's pretty interesting to me. So I'm very curious to see how um, universities are gonna be responding Uh, You know, to Gen Z. And then my understanding is we have uh, Gen uh, Alpha after that. So I'm like, oh, I wonder wonder where this is all going.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a good trend. Um, It's good to see. And and more knowledge about like just how bad student loan debt is. Hey, can you talk about, you know, student loan debt? You know, obviously I think it's a very, very, very concerning thing. It's ballooned yep. even in the last five, 10 years. Yep. Um, you know, is it worse than people think it is? Is is it not as bad? And and do you have any potential ideas, you know, change the bankruptcy laws? I don't know.
1: Sure, yeah. You know, I don't know all the current stats like right off the top of my head right here, but uh but what I think I mean it it sort of it definitely smells quite a bit like um you know, the housing crash in 2008, when it's like banks were, were loaning out money to families to buy homes that they could not service. And then the whole thing crushed under its own weight. And it feels the same way of saying to a 17 or 18 year old, Hey, you're going to sign this piece of paper. You know, this says that, after you're done with school you're going to start paying off this loan at this percentage rate i'm guessing it's not even that clear actually i mean i remember myself signing off on student loans and just being like yeah i just put my name here right like no one walked me through the math um i was lucky in that you know i had something like a less than two percent interest rate um and it was like ten thousand bucks so i paid it off and it was not a big deal um you know, but I've I've heard lots of stories from young people of, oh, I got this degree. And it turns out one, it wasn't even the thing I wanted to study. I haven't been able to get a job. I'm paying off 80,000 in debt, but I'm not even touching the principal because the interest rate is so high. Um, so sometimes it's not even the, the school expense itself, although I think that's highway robbery. It's the loan companies that uh, really are just killing people and I was even talking to a surgeon a couple of years ago actually and I said and it's funny I didn't bring up. she didn't know who I was she didn't know what I do um, or like what I stand for and I said what do you think is like a common misnomer about becoming a surgeon she goes oh people think that you're like floating in cash and you're making all this money and she goes it does pay well but what no one understands is that to get there you have to take out so much in loans she was like I'm just happy that my husband works at google because that's what's been able to afford us to be able to, you know, uh, you know, have the apartment that we have be, so that she can service her debt. Um, and I just thought like, wow, ESO, even if you get a really good job, it comes at this very, very high cost. Uh, and, and it's something that people need to think about a lot of like, does it make sense for someone to take out those loans? For some people it does. For some people it doesn't. Um, you know, there are innovative structures coming into play that I'm still developing opinions on, you know, there are the income sharing agreement models that a lot of the boot camps are doing. And I think it's interesting. I don't know where that's going to land, but what I think is right is that the incentive of a lot of boot camp programs is to get you a job. Like they only do well when you do well in the market and schools aren't like that. And I I do think that, it would be nice if they would move in that direction, but they don't have very much of an incentive to like there are, you know, there aren't people rallying outside of Stanford uh, to lower tuition or to, uh, you know, have an ISA agreement or something like that. Like they, they're just kind of getting to do it how they do it. But I, I do think there are some interesting models that are coming into play.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think uh, I really like the ISA model at our little, little startup in the last two years, the all of the engineers we've hired have been from Lambda yeah. School.
1: Oh cool. Um,
0: and they're all like, it's so funny, you know, like one of them was a cinematographer before, and he's just yep. the most incredible data scientist you've ever met. Another That's one was so a awesome. bartender and yep. you know, nice incredible web developer. And the the best thing about it was, you know, I I inquired, I was like, you know, I we need to hire this, like we're trying to get done. And, you know, the 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 late, I guess sales lady, reverse recruiter, whatever you, you um like to call this person but you know from Lambda, she beat down the door i mean she's calling me she's texting me she's emailing me I'm like man i couldn't get unc chapel hill to get off their butts to call anybody oh, on no. my behalf you know and it's just like no. this is like the aligning incentives. It, it, it was it was really I, I i felt much better about the future after that experience that's but,
1: great to hear and those and those employees are still happy with the isa agreement they're like okay good like i know it tops out at a certain point and i think I remember when ISAs first came out. I think people were thinking like, "Oh, they can just like keep keep going," and it right. was like, mm, "I don't think that's going to work out." Yeah, um, but but it seems like they're happy with the model.
0: I I think they've been happy. Yeah, and you know, I, and we'd have to ask them, uh, you know, on yeah. that specific point. But yeah. I think it it was, it, you know, a, a lot better than going and and you know taking out the 120k it was much more compressed you know the time period was much less it was it was still much cheaper so I don't yeah. know at, at that level, well and I love I the kind of, sort
1: and, of transformative model there of like a person who doesn't think they're maybe cut out for a certain role and then they go through boot camp and it's like oh I went from being this to being this and and now I see myself as a different person and I think that's something that people are going to have to think about over the long haul is that you know it's considered like, like, like you're like old hat, if you're at a role for more than two years at this point, it's like, right. Oh, like, you know, you always have to be sort of learning and growing and taking on something new. And and I think boot camps really help facilitate that.
0: That's a good point. You know, you, you can pivot a lot more and, and, and change things. Right. Um, it makes that more possible. Yeah. Uh, Venture capital, 1517 fund, we've talked to Zach and Michael already. Yeah. And uh, you guys, you've got a great culture. I mean, they both spoke very highly of you. Um, I, I wanted to mention that. Uh, what do you think people most miss about venture capital? And do you think your background in education gave you kind of a, a mm. unique ability to, you know, what's the mean, like to actually be helpful, perhaps? Mm-hmm. I don't
1: right. know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Gosh, uh, these are good questions. Um, Trying to think, I'm going to let the, like, what do people miss percolate in the yeah. back of my brain while I go with the educator piece. I do think that being an educator has really served me very well in terms of my role with 1517. Um, you know, a lot of what we do since we're at the pre-seed stage is a lot of coaching and mentoring of founders. And, you know, that's what you do a lot as a teacher as well. Right. And so I love being with people. I love using the Socratic method to, to sort of get information out like Michael Strong does. Um we also liken a lot of what we do to being uh, switchboard operators, you know, like the old style, like, okay, oh, cool. plug and pull this one. It's like, I meet a person. I say, Oh, you have to talk to this person. And I make that intro and then, you know, they're on their way or, um, you know, a founder that we just onboarded was asking us if we had any best practices for family leave plans for, okay. uh, for him. And I said, well, Let me message my founders and find out. So I messaged all my series A and above founders and said, hey, if you have a family leave plan, would love to see it, you know, see what your best practices are. And I got about 10 emails back from people. Oh, Oh, here's what art looks like. You know, collect a lot of stuff, sent it over to the founder and said, I don't have time to like triangulate (laughs) this and make it into a nice packet for you, but here's the information. Um, So so I do think that my background as an educator, plays really nicely. And I definitely do have a drive to actually be helpful uh, and do things like make connections and uh, offer feedback on things. So so I, I do think, uh, yeah, it, it just plays in nicely. And then as far as like, what do people miss about venture? The thing that is mostly coming to mind right now is maybe that it's like each stage of venture is very different. It's like. Gotcha. Pretty- funds, seed funds, series A funds, beyond funds, we all have very different um, incentives and we work with very different types of groups. It's like the people that I'm kind of um, beholden to are my investors, my limited partners in the fund uh, and all venture Capital funds have limited partners, but they have different types. So for example, mine tend to be individuals and family offices. So I'm working at the very human level with people. Whereas if we were a larger fund or a series A fund or something like that, we'd be working with institutional investors. And the things that different types of investors we work with want and the patience that they have are different um, at different levels. And so what I'd say to founders is really know... Really th- like think about um, when you're pitching a fund. What does your company have to be to that fund for you to be a great investment for them? Um, because it's going to be really individual for each fund. And I think gotcha. people too often go into a pitch meeting thinking like these are all one and the same. The way I would pitch at Series A is the same as I'd you know pitch at Seed, and it's not.
0: Gotcha. That makes sense. So it seems like it's it's very different from you know you're serving California state pension. Uh, you yes. know, and, and you're trying to yeah. like, you know, save that entire pension fund from, right. you know, going under in 20 years. That's a lot of yeah. pressure versus like, yeah. you know, family offices and, and smaller yeah. stuff. That makes a lot Absolutely. of sense.
1: No, I, I love our investors. They're really great to work with. Sometimes they'll get nervous when we have like a, a report <laughs> call with them yeah. and then they get on the call and some of them have funny zoom backgrounds. I'm oh, like, oh, these awesome. are just humans. Like, you know, they're goofballs like me. Like, that's great.
0: That's cool. That's I, I love that. Um, Uh, there's this perception of vc like uh, a lot of vcs being like hard charging etc like um perhaps unkind like kind of super arrogant and everyone we've talked to at 1517 fund and your culture it seems to be like really good you're all very nice people do you you think that's been like a competitive advantage of some in some sense like just not being terrible yeah no
1: it's a a huge advantage it's sad it's a really (laughs) sad state of affairs um that that becomes a huge competitive advantage for us but you know what's funny is we had a retreat with the team just a few months ago and my colleague Nick is very insightful and he said uh, he said um you know we got to double down on who we are and just like be our weird selves and so like now for example I'm like my cat's the thing I don't care (laughs) like who I am I'm a crazy I've got my I'm like, oh, this is terrible today. I've got cats <laughs> on. <laughs> Love it. Um, so we just sort of double down on who we are and it, it seems to work. And it also works in some really interesting ways for us where I think we also attract founders who are often um, you know, underrepresented because we don't have that stuffy, the door is shut, you have to get the warm intro um, I had so much fun yesterday. I had two people who wrote into our contact form and we asked for a fun fact for, from people. And we don't mean that section to be like the humble brag of like, well, fun fact. <laughs> I, I, I worked to McKinsey. At no, but someone wrote in this, like, I don't remember exactly how they said it, but this one woman wrote in and she, she talked about being a chicken rescuer and like rescuing That's someone's awesome. chickens once and like, I wrote her back and I was like, you had me at chicken rescuer. And then this other guy wrote and said that uh, a company he had before this, that was kind of just a side hustle was he had these coffee mugs and he would fill them with dirt and he would take succulent clippings and just put them in the dirt because you can do this with succulents. You don't need to to root them. And he would sell them for a 3X markup (laughs) on the price of the mug. And he's like, I just had so much fun doing this. And it was so good for me to be in my body, like stuffing these things with dirt. And I was like, I wrote him back. I was like, you had me at succulent markup. I was like, we have to talk. Um, That's amazing. So so we just have a really good time with people. And, I, and I, it, it does make us stand out. And I think our founders really trust us over time, even for our founders where they're really off to the races and you know, they're series A and above you know, those founders, you know, still want to talk on a regular basis and say, Hey, here's the problem I'm having with my board, or here's the, an issue I'm having with an investor because we become this super trusted and also like easy casual group to go to. Like we get to know people on a very personal level. Some of our founders we've taken out for their first beer, like not because we asked but because they asked us to. Oh, that's great. Uh, and I'm uh, always so pleased by that when I'm like, really? really? <laughs> I want to take you out for your first legal beer. That's crazy. <laughs>
0: I love that. I love that. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on. I, I've got two final questions. Yeah. Um, one is uh, what advice do you have for someone, uh, you know, that's younger, early in their career, and um, thinking about all these issues like career wise, you know, where do I fit in the world, etc. That's a mm. huge question. I don't know. And it, it's also general, right? So that's, that's kind of I makes guess even harder.
1: One thing that I'd say is that. Every few years is going to be really different. I think gotcha. I think long gone are the days where someone worked in the same place for you know like even when I tell people I was at the foundation for five years, they're like, oh wow, five years! And like to <laughs> me, time. I'm like, that doesn't seem that that long. But right. uh, but apparently that's like that's like I don't know the ice age of work. Um, but uh, but one thing to think about is that yeah, like every few years has the potential to be markedly different. Um, And so that means you do want to keep educating yourself and learning things. And, you know, that means like reading books, you know, maybe taking some (laughs) online classes. I don't mean like enrolling back in school again. Um, I think that is something to think about with one's career. I think it's really important, you know, as much as one can do so to be motivated by what they're doing. Um, I was talking to a young man this morning who is starting a a startup, but he's telling me about his job. Um, He's a contractor for Google and he's like, "Eh, it's fine. It pays the bills, but, you know, it's just kind of the same thing every day and I don't really like it. And And he's probably about 22 years old. And I said, you know, this is good. You're getting that internal barometer for yourself of what works for you and what isn't. And a lot of people stay in things that don't work for them, whether that's work, whether that's relationships, like family stuff, like people just kind of tough it out for a really long time because you think, oh, this is just the way it is, Um, you know, but you know he's sort of learning that when he puts his feet on the ground in the morning and he goes uh i don't really want to do this thing day after day that that's a sign like that's his intuition yeah. telling him like maybe this isn't the thing that that we should be spending time on and we're not all fortunate enough to be able to always have a job that we love or anything like that but it's something that i think people can pay attention to uh, and lastly i would say i think um you know there are the golden handcuff jobs people who go to the fang companies and they say, I'm going to be here for a year. I'm going to be here for two years. I'm going to get to this thing. um, And then leave. And then they never leave because they get used to a certain lifestyle and that's very real. It's very hard to move backwards. It's, it's hard to say, Oh, I'm going to do this other thing that I love that pays less, or I'm going to do a startup and, you know, not have much of a salary for a while. Um, So, you know, if you're at a big company, you know, think about how long you want to be there. Um, you know, think about what effect it's, it's, you know, maybe having on you overall. And if you do have an exit date, like, you know, really, really try to keep at it. Right. I think, it, I think Daniel, I think
0: that's in, incredible advice. It's like you've got to be very wary about getting stuck at like these local minima that, are, oh, that yeah. aren't aren't perfect. Like, they that are, and and you you never like look elsewhere and try and like golden handcuffs. Like that's really. That's great advice. Great advice to think about. Yeah. Um, well, Danielle, uh, where can people find you, your work, 1517 Fund? Where should we send them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. People are welcome to email me, danielle at 1517fund.com. They can find me on Twitter, dstrackman. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn, although I usually only add people on LinkedIn when I either know them or someone writes, write a really good personal LinkedIn message. Like those are, those get my attention way more. Tell me that you like cutting up succulents and selling them to people. (laughs) (laughs) markup. That's the way to my heart is three (laughs) X markup on succulents. Um, but yeah, I, I always say, um, you know, especially if you're a, a young person, a maker, a founder, um, maybe you're in high school. Uh, and you're just thinking about your future and you want to reach out, feel free. Um, It's never too early. I always tell people that, you know, if you think, oh, maybe I should message Danielle, just do it. Like, there's no right time.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you, Danielle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Danielle. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis and I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.